0: the eighth in a series of podcasts for the British Society of Haematology, recorded to accompany the guidelines on the use of prophylactic factor replacement for children and adults with Haemophilia A and B. This is an update of the guideline published in 2010, which addressed prophylaxis in children with severe Haemophilia A. This recording has been recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic via Zoom, so we apologise for any compromising quality. My name is Rachel Raymond. I was appointed in 2004 as a consultant haematologist with an interest in haemostasis and thrombosis at the University Hospital of Wales, Cardiff, and the clinical director of a multidisciplinary network delivering care to people with bleeding disorders across East, South, Mid, and West Wales. Today I'll discuss the main aspects of the guideline, which include the following questions What is the aim of prophylaxis in the management of a person with haemophilia? Who should be offered prophylaxis? When should primary prophylaxis begin in children with haemophilia and how should it be started? What products should be used for prophylaxis? How do you choose the appropriate prophylactic regimen for a person with haemophilia? How long should prophylaxis continue? And how do you know if prophylaxis is working? Firstly, we address the question, what is the aim of prophylaxis in the management of a person with haemophilia? The simple answer is to prevent bleeding. However, although in the UK prophylaxis is initiated at an increasingly young age, it has not always been the case. And there are some ad- young adults who did not start prophylaxis until they were three to five years of age, and some older adults who did not have prophylaxis as a child and have started prophylaxis in later life to preserve musculoskeletal function. Although the primary outcome is the same across the age range, the other outcomes are specific to each cohort. The ISTH has defined three types of prophylaxis and their aims of prophylaxis in relation to joint health at onset. Primary prophylaxis is commenced before the second joint bleed and before the age of three years in the absence of documented joint disease with the aim that children reach maturity with normal joints. Secondary prophylaxis commences after two or more joint bleeds but before the onset of joint disease with the aim to limit the consequence of joint damage that might have been caused and to maximise function into adulthood. It cannot, however, reverse previously subclinical but established joint disease. Tertiary prophylaxis commences after the onset of clinically or radiologically apparent joint disease and aims to slow down progression of joint disease, reducing pain and maintaining quality of life. It cannot reverse established joint disease. Who should be offered primary prophylaxis? There's clear evidence that prophylaxis decreases the frequency of joint and other hemorrhages and thus prevents joint damage in boys with severe haemophilia. This guideline builds on previous recommendation that all boys with severe haemophilia A should receive primary prophylaxis. In the absence of randomized controlled trials for severe haemophilia B, the same approach is taken. Recently, attention has turned to those people with moderate haemophilia defined as a level between one and five international units per deciliter. Without prophylaxis, most men with moderate haemophilia A will have at least one target joint, with joint scores very similar to those with severe haemophilia A. Although Arlberg demonstrated as early as 1965 that those with a baseline level of over 3% were largely protected from arthropathy, suggesting moderate haemophilia encompasses a wide spectrum of bleeding phenotypes. So, is the classification of moderate haemophilia still relevant today? Boys with severe haemophilia who administer standard prophylaxis will have factor 8 or 9 levels above 5 IU per deciliter most of the time. Whereas boys with moderate haemophilia who do not receive prophylaxis will always be below this level by definition. Interestingly, Denweil et al. demonstrated that for those with moderate haemophilia A, a factor rate of one to two IU per deciliter has been associated with the highest risk of bleeding, with a median of 5.5 joint bleeds per year, despite prophylaxis in 35%. This falls to 1.4 joint bleeds per year in those with moderate haemophilia A, who have a level of three to five IU per deciliter. In the UK, the Thunder study investigated the long-term joint outcomes of people with haemophilia registered on the UK National Haemophilia Database. In the group born between 1976 and 1996 the haemophilia joint health score or hjhs was high with no discernible difference in score between those with moderate haemophilia a with levels between one and three iu per deciliter, and those with severe haemophilia a irrespective of whether they were on prophylaxis or on demand therapy the study also examined children born between 1996 and 2015 a time when prophylaxis was a standard of care for children with severe haemophilia A. As is the intention, the mean HJHS in this cohort was zero with an interquartile range of zero to one. In contrast, children with moderate haemophilia A born during this time had a median HJHS of three with an interquartile range of naught to nine. Indeed, 25% of children with moderate haemophilia A had significant arthropathy. The difference existed whether or not children with moderate haemophilia A were receiving prophylaxis, suggesting a discrepancy in the approach to the care of these two groups. It is likely that those with moderate haemophilia A have had more bleeds before prophylaxis is initiated, allowing the development of arthropathy. Although there is clear evidence for the use of prophylaxis in severe haemophilia A, there is little for its use in moderate haemophilia A although it should be noted that the Manco-Johnson randomised controlled trial assessing the effect of prophylaxis on joint health did include people with levels between 0 and 2 IU per deciliter. Current evidence suggests that people with a baseline level of less than 4 IU per deciliter develop significant joint damage. Since the goal of haemophilia care is to prevent bleeding, then they should be considered for primary prophylaxis. We therefore recommend that all people with moderate haemophilia A should be offered prophylaxis if the level is below 4 IU per deciliter. And all people with haemophilia should be offered prophylaxis after their first spontaneous joint bleed. Who should be offered secondary prophylaxis? In the ESPRIT trial of prophylaxis in severe haemophilia A, Secondary analysis showed that over the study follow up period of up to 10 years, none of the eight boys randomised to prophylaxis under the age of 36 months developed radiological evidence of joint damage, compared with three out of 10 boys randomised to episodic therapy. However, in addition, only six out of 18, that's 46% of boys who started prophylaxis after the age of 36 months showed radiological evidence of joint involvement during the study period compared with 10 out of 12, or 83% of those on episodic therapy. This study demonstrates the benefit of secondary prophylaxis, which should be offered to a person with haemophilia who has sustained one or more joint bleeds, if not already established on primary prophylaxis. Finally, who should be offered tertiary prophylaxis? The SPIN-ART study was a randomized controlled trial comparing tertiary prophylaxis with on-demand therapy in people with severe haemophilia aged 12 to 50 years. Those taking prophylaxis had a 94% reduction in bleeding events and a 54% reduction in chronic pain. As compared with on-demand treatment, prophylaxis was associated with improved function and quality of life, although MRI score did not differ. Similarly, The Potter Prospective Open Label Study compared long-term tertiary prophylaxis with on-demand treatment in people with severe haemophilia A aged 12 to 55. It demonstrated significant improvement in joint scores and quality of life indicators associated with a reduction in bleeding. We recommend that prophylaxis should be offered to a person with haemophilia who has established joint damage due to haemarthrosis and who experiences ongoing bleeding. When should primary prophylactic factor replacement therapy begin in children with severe or moderate haemophilia? The average age of the first joint bleed in severe haemophilia is 1.49 years, usually associated with ambulation. The optimum time to start prophylaxis in childhood is unclear, since randomized controlled studies evaluating the role of prophylaxis have not been designed to answer this question. In the manco johnson randomized controlled trial to assess efficacy of prophylaxis versus episodic treatment prophylaxis was introduced to boys with haemophilia a with a level of two or below between the age of six and 30 months who had experienced no more than two joint bleeds mri assessment at six years demonstrated that 25 out of 27 or 93 percent in the prophylaxis group had normal joints compared with 16 out of 29 or 55 percent in the episodic therapy group. As mentioned previously, the ESPRIT trial of prophylaxis in Haemophilia A, the secondary analysis showed that there were radiological signs of joint damage in none of the eight patients randomized to prophylaxis under 36 months, compared with three of 10 of the boys, same age, randomized to episodic therapy. Importantly, two of 13 boys who started prophylaxis older than 36 months showed some clinical signs of joint involvement compared with two out of nine boys on episodic therapy of the same age. Similar findings have been reported in cohort studies. In a German single-centre cohort study of 19 boys with severe and two with moderate haemophilia, all boys who started prophylaxis before the age of three years had normal joints at evaluation, both clinical and radiological, done after four years. When prophylaxis was started between three and 5.5 years, 100% had both clinical and radiological evidence of joint disease. Finally, in a Swedish nationwide cohort of 121 boys with severe haemophilia with an 18 year follow-up, 85% of the 75 patients who started prophylaxis before the age of three years had normal joints, versus only 50% of those who started later than three years. For a person with severe haemophilia or moderate haemophilia, with a baseline level between one and three IU per deciliter, we recommend that primary prophylaxis should be started before or immediately after the first joint bleed. This will usually be at the time of ambulation, around 12 months of age, and certainly before 24 months. Which factor replacement product should be used for prophylaxis? Treatment-related risk factors have been identified for inhibitor formation in severe haemophilia A. Differences in inhibitor rates have been reported for different recombinant Factor VIII products in previously untreated people. And in retrospective cohort studies and between plasma derived and recombinant products in the Sipet study, which is a randomised controlled study. However, The European Haemophilia Safety Surveillance Project reviewed the data and the EMA subsequently concluded that there is no clear evidence of a difference in the incidence of inhibitor development between plasma-derived and recombinant factor VIII. There is of course a theoretical risk of transmission of infection with plasma-derived products. The choice of factor replacement product must involve shared decision-making with the person with haemophilia and or their parent or legal guardian. Extended half-life products are available in the UK and guidance of their use has been published. The lower frequency of infusion may obviate the need for a central venous access device in young children but the benefits are likely to be less apparent in Haemophilia A than in Haemophilia B where the half-life is more significantly prolonged. It's important to note that studies in previously untreated patients with Haemophilia have not been conducted for all extended half-life products and so recording of outcomes, including rates of inhibitor formation in prospective registries, is important. There is published UK HCDO guidance for the use of recombinant factor VIII and IX extended half-life products, which should be used only when they provide clear clinical benefit over standard half-life products. What about non-factor prophylaxis in haemophilia? Emicizumab is a bispecific monoclonal antibody which mimics the effect of factor eight by bringing activated factor nine in contact with factor 10 resulting in effective thrombin generation. It is licensed for the prevention of bleeding in adults and children with severe haemophilia A both with and without inhibitors. It is associated with a constant level of hemostatic cover providing a new steady baseline level rather than the peaks and troughs associated with classical prophylaxis. The Haven 3 study was a randomised open-label study in people with severe haemophilia A, aged over 12 years without inhibitors. Weekly emicizumab reduced the annualised bleed rate to 1.5, with 95% confidence interval of 0.9 to 2.5, and bi-weekly to 1.3, with a confidence interval of 0.8 to 2.3, compared with 38.2 with confidence intervals of 22.9 to 63.8 when treated on demand. This supports the role of emicizumab for prophylaxis in people with severe haemophilia A without inhibitors over the age of 12 years. The limited data in children with severe haemophilia A and an inhibitor suggest that emicizumab will be equally efficacious in non-inhibitor children. However, caution is advised in this age group may be significantly more active than both the older cohort and the pediatric group with inhibitors. Any increase in bleed frequency will adversely impact on joint health and quality of life. It's important to note that there is no randomized controlled trial comparing emicizumab with optimized factor VIII prophylaxis, which is an important gap in the evidence base to date. Emicizumab is not licensed for use in moderate haemophilia A in the UK and should not be substitute for factor 8 prophylaxis outside of clinical trials. emicizumab has been associated with certain side effects, including thrombosis, and in some cases recurrence of a previously tolerised inhibitor. Data on its use should be collected by national registries. How should primary prophylaxis be commenced? There are different approaches to commencing prophylaxis in young children. It may be started at the standard full dose, that is 20 to 40 units per kilogram on alternate days and tailored to prevent bleeding. Alternatively, it may be introduced at a reduced frequency, building up to the full dose as soon as possible or based on bleeding phenotype. The latter approach may avoid the need for a central venous access device, but there is likely to be suboptimal protection against bleeding, which could have consequences in terms of long term joint health. Indeed, allowing joint bleeds to occur whilst using an incremental approach to primary prophylaxis, permitting up to two bleeds per joint in a three-month period before intensification, has been shown to result in osteochondral changes on MRI at a median age of 8.8 years, demonstrating inadequate protection against joint damage. The multidisciplinary team should support the introduction of prophylaxis in a child with haemophilia therapy can be used to prepare teach and distract the child reducing difficulties around venous access psychologists should support the family to address emotional and behavioral issues and anxieties which might affect both delivery of prophylaxis and the family's quality of life Whether prophylaxis is administered through peripheral or central veins is dependent on the ease of venous access the child and the family however Before inserting a central venous access device, the risk of infection and thrombosis should be weighed against the relative ease of venous access. Younger age and the use of external central venous access devices are associated with higher rates of infection. How do we determine the most appropriate regimen for prophylaxis with factor replacement? As already discussed, people with moderate haemophilia whose baseline level is more than 3 IU per deciliter. Are likely to have a normal joint score in adulthood, and theoretically, it may be possible to maintain joint health by maintaining a level above this at all times with prophylaxis. However, it is important to note that baseline factor 8 and 9 levels are not the same as trough levels on prophylaxis. Certainly, it could predict, be predicted that the higher the trough level, the lower the likelihood of bleeding. This was demonstrated in the ProPal study. Which used pharmacokinetic guided dosing with pegylated recombinant factor 8 to target trough levels of 1 to 3 or 8 to 12 iu per deciliter the target trough was achieved in both arms and the annualized bleed rate in the former was 3.6 compared to 1.6 in the latter a study of pegylated factor 9 randomized people with haemophilia and a baseline of two or less to weekly infusions of 10 IU per kilogram or 40 IU per kilogram. The trough levels were 8.5 and 27.3 IU per deciliter, respectively. The median or bleeds for the lower dose was an ABR of 2.9 with an interquartile range of 1 to 6, compared with 1.0 with an interquartile range of naught to four with a higher dose, suggesting that maintaining a higher trough can reduce bleeding. Prophylaxis throughout childhood should result in the individual having normal musculoskeletal function. The goal of haemophilia care in adults is to maintain that function by preventing bleeding. In the Netherlands, a single center cohort study reported on joint outcomes in adults who either continued or stopped prophylaxis. When compared with adults who continued prophylaxis, the joint assessment score was worse after 10 years for those who discontinued prophylaxis. We recommend that lifelong prophylaxis should be the standard of care and should be encouraged. If an adult discontinues prophylaxis, then it should be recommenced in the event of spontaneous haemarthrosis or any bleeding that interferes with education or employment or quality of life. How do we assess the clinical efficacy of a prophylaxis regimen? it's important to review the efficacy of a prophylaxis regimen the person with haemophilia should be encouraged to complete treatment records detailing any bleeds the aim is to have no bleeds but this is difficult to achieve even in young children for older adults distinguishing a bleed from arthritic pain can be very challenging any reported bleeds should be reviewed promptly by the haemophilia multidisciplinary team in order to review adherence and address any musculoskeletal or psychosocial factors that might be present and causing barriers to adherence. Other assessments of efficacy are done through determining joint health. People with haemophilia receiving prophylaxis should have annual detailed musculoskeletal assessment to monitor the development of arthropathy. The HJHS score can distinguish between children with severe and non-severe haemophilia and between young adults on different intensities of prophylactic regimens. It should be noted however that an HJHS may be abnormal in the non-haemophilia population and in isolation may not be predictive of future joint problems. It is however useful to monitor an individual's joint health over time. Plain radiography will detect established arthritic change but if present reflects a failure of prophylaxis. There is current interest in assessment of earlier joint damage, which might influence the prophylactic regimen. MRI and ultrasonography are being investigated, but neither have yet been shown to be predictive of long-term joint function. and should only be used for when there is a clear clinical indication or within a research study. Finally, we believe that health promotion is an important part of the care of a person with haemophilia who is receiving prophylaxis. An increased body mass has been shown to contribute to a reduction in range of movements of joints. Exercise is associated with an improvement in joint health and pain scores. People with haemophilia are more likely to have a low bone mineral density as a consequence of hemophilic arthropathy and reduced activity as well as hepatitis c and hiv infection. Indeed in a series of 49 people with moderate haemophilia and severe haemophilia Two thirds of people over the age of 50 years had osteoporosis and bone mineral density showed significant correlation with HJHS. A person receiving antiretroviral medication should be screened regularly for osteoporosis. We also believe that each clinical consultation should provide the opportunity for the prevention and detection of comorbidities that influence prophylaxis, including hypertension, ischemic heart disease, atrial fibrillation, the use of antiplatelet, anticoagulant drugs and smoking cessation. In conclusion, these guidelines provide an update in the approach to prophylaxis in haemophilia, addressing the significant unmet need in people with moderate haemophilia. Of course, this is a constantly changing area, particularly with the advent of new non-factor products, such as fitzuran and TFPI inhibitors, which are currently in trial, not to mention gene therapy. It's important to remember that access is the gold standard for haemophilia care at present and all new regimens should be measured against this. Finally, thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. Please visit the BSH website for other podcasts that hopefully bring other current guidelines to life. Thank you.